0: Oftentimes when we talk about our faith or faith in general, we always talk about it in the sense of salvation. But how often do we talk about it, what role does it play in our Christian life? How does faith help us live in our Christian life? Well, I think Peter helps us with that question. So if you have your Bibles with you or if you have your bulletins with you, Let us open our Bibles and read 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 6 through 9. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Here's God's word. In this you rejoice. Through now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your presence in this afternoon, seeking your word, seeking your bread, seeking your life because you are the giver of life. We thank you because you brought us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. And you constantly feed us through your word, through your church, through your people. Help us, Lord, that we may not just be hearers of your word, but also doers of your word. So that the world may know that there is a living God who lives and reigns forever. Sometimes we talk about you as those you are in a concept or apologetic arguments. But we forget that you are a living and active God who lives today and you rule and sovereign over everything, including our life. So we ask that you give us your grace and mercy today so that we can, be, so we can hear your word, believe it, and live it. For the glory of your name, in Christ's name do we pray. Amen. Just to give an overview of First Peter, as some of you guys may not have heard, that Peter is writing this letter to Christians who were facing immense prosecution. They were being mocked. They were being ridiculed for their faith. And Peter writes this letter to encourage them as they lived a Christian life. They were being brought to court for false charges. They were being made fun of because they lived differently than those in the the culture. So Peter gives them some encouragement. And he begins this verse six by saying this, in this you rejoice. Now, what is Peter saying here on this phrase? Well, what Peter is saying here, he's referring back to what he already said. In verses one through five, Peter gives them the foundation and the basis of their Christian life that is, their salvation. He's saying, rejoice at the fact that you are saved. The fact that you have been brought out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The fact that you have been given the spirit of God that now indwells in you. You're without hope and life in this world. But now you have Christ. Now you have hope. Now you have life because you have been given the salvation. You have been chosen Before the foundation of the world, that's what Peter talks about, as elect exiles, chosen and separated from this world. God has loved you before the foundation of this world, and he has set his love on you. This is important because how many of us rejoice at our salvation? How many of us meditate on the fact that we are saved that we are redeemed, that we've been given life. There's an old preacher that said one time, if God does not give me anything else in this world, the fact that he saved me is all that I need. You have an inheritance. So you should rejoice at the fact that you're saved. I like what Jesus told the disciples in Luke 10, 10.20 when he says this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our names are written in heaven. And Peter is reminding them, you are saved. And from this point on, he begins then to describe the Christian life. But before he describes the Christian life, he gives us the basis of our Christian life that we've been wholly redeemed people. And then he goes on from this point on, from verse 6 into the rest of the book, to continue to encourage them in their salvation. To encourage them that the fact that you're no longer under the wrath of God, you are a beloved child and daughter of God. You have been given a new life, new hope. So rejoice in the fact that you're saved. But Peter also is reminding them what is expected for every believer. Suffering. The Christian life is a life of suffering. Because we have three enemies that go go against everything that we're called to believe. We have the world and its philosophy. As our brother Brock was saying earlier, that sin no longer is even a vocabulary that we use today. We have the world and its influence that tells us contrary to what the Bible says. We have the devil, as the guy was praying today, who constantly assails us and constantly attacks us and constantly slanders us against God. And then we have our own personal flesh that constantly battles for us to do what is opposite. We're constantly um, battling our flesh to live for God. We're under the burden in and the, in the, in the heaviness of our flesh because of our sinful nature. So Peter is reminding them, you're going to suffer. It's a guarantee. And he reminds them in 1 Peter 4.12 when he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it, come, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, I want to be specific here. The trial that Peter is specifically speaking about is persecution. He's not talking about the daily, everyday result of the fall, which is sickness or um, bad health or your marriage just breaks down. But specifically to persecution. Now, we're living in time in the history in America where we're not facing a lot of persecution And that is unique because throughout the whole world and throughout Christian history, that is not common. But as times move on, we will face persecution. Maybe not physically, but emotionally, mentally. So in the meantime, Peter is telling them and giving them some encouragement encouragement. And the first encouragement he gives them is remind them of the suffering that is for a short while. He says here in verse 6, in as you rejoice through now for a little while. In other words, that our suffering is momentarily. It is not everlasting. It is not forever. Now, I'm not saying for a month or for a week. Maybe some people are called to suffer their whole Christian life. Some suffer for a season. But in any case, our suffering is short. We oftentimes get so influenced by the world that we live and we believe that this is all that it is. That we forget that there's an afterlife. That we forget that there's an eternity awaiting for us. And we only hear, as James says, a blimp, a spot, a vape. We're here for a vape and then boom, we're gone. So Peter's saying, your suffering is short. It may not be for a month, it may be forever, it may be as long as you're alive. But overall, rejoice, as Paul tells us in St. Corinthians chapter four, seventeen, that this momentary suffering doesn't compare to what awaits us. And this expression that Peter gives is makes suffering more bearable because you realize it is for a short while. The example I like to use is when you go to the gym and you work out. In that time period, you're suffering, and you're putting your body through pain, and you're ripping your body apart. But you do it because it produces something good. Well, suffering is the same way. It's for a short while. So the question is, what do we do while we're suffering? Peter gives another encouragement. To rejoice. We're called to rejoice in our suffering. And this phrase is constantly used throughout the Bible. He uses it in 1 Peter, as I read earlier. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, or in other words, count it as joy. Romans 5, 3 says that joy, rejoice in your suffering. Throughout the scripture, we are told to rejoice in our suffering. Look at what he says in 1 Peter on verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So then the question is, why do we rejoice in our suffering? Well, Peter keeps giving us the answer. If necessary. That's an interesting phrase, if necessary. In other words, what Peter's saying that suffering... Is, God, is part of God's plan. God does lead us into suffering. But what Peter is telling us, if that is true, that means that God is sovereign over our suffering. And this is what Peter, it reminds him constantly throughout the book that God is sovereign over your suffering. That even in the midst of your worst pain, God is in control of every situation that happens in your life. When Jesus was baptized and he came from the water, what was the first thing that happened. The Spirit led him into the temptation, and for forty days he was tempted and suffered. God love leads us into a suffering, and this is hard, especially for me as I as I come into ministry, seeing that suffering is part of God's plan. It's going to happen, whether you're going through it now. Were you coming out of it or will you will in the future. And the best story I can think of is Job. Because it was God who told Satan about Job. When Satan was roaming around and Satan went up and, he, and God asked him, what are you doing, Satan? He goes, roaming around. He goes, have you considered my servant Job? He goes, I haven't, but if you want to do it, let's, let's go. And God allowed Satan to, to, to bring suffering to Job, both physically and processionally. But what, why is suffering important for us? Well, this is the theme of, the, of, of this few verses. Is that so we can grow in our faith? Suffering helps us to produce our growth in our faith. Look at what Job says towards the end of, after all he suffered. I love this section right here. Look at what Job says about his faith and his faith in God. I know that you do, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's faith grew even more while he was suffering. He says, I heard about you through the hearing, but now I see you. And Job was declared a righteous God says he is righteous. He was a a man that was, if you want to put it in modern times, that was going to church. He was reading his Bible. He was confessing his sin. He was, you know, doing everything that a Christian is supposed to do. But God says you need to grow. So this is why we rejoice. It's not that God is mad at us. It's not that God hates us or he's trying to hurt us or trying to do something evil to us. He wants us to grow in our faith. So that's why he, he produces suffering. Because suffering gives us hope. Because as we see God's work in our life through our suffering, we begin to mature in love for him. And believe in him. And here Peter says, by various trials, some say it's colorful trials. As I said before, trial means Persecution. The believers at this time were facing immense persecution. They were being tested for their faith. They were being mocked for being a Christian. They were being ridiculed for who they believe. Now, it is hard to live for for Christ here in America. Because it is so opposite of what we believe. Because here in America, we talk about to love ourselves, to take care of ourselves, to believe in ourselves. Uh, To do the thing the opposite. I remember when I became a Christian, one of the fears that I had was this. For a few months, I would lie to my cousins when I when I first became a Christian. I said, "Hey guys, I'm going to some girl's house. I'll be right back." But really, what I was doing, I was going to church. But it wasn't until I started reading the Bible and Luke Matthew ten twenty thirty three says, "If you deny me before man, I will deny before my Father in heaven." And at that point, I had to make a decision. Do I continue to live this double life, or do I stand for Christ? And I stood for Christ. And as I expected, they mocked me. They ridiculed butic- they me. They made fun of me. My, my friends were making fun of me. My, even my own barber would make fun of me when I used to get a haircut. So it's hard. Because it's questioning our faith. It's questioning what we believe And Peter was writing this letter to these people who were facing this persecution. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you at your job. Maybe you're afraid to speak about Christ because you're afraid that people at your work may not like it. You're afraid that if you talk too much about this Jesus guy, that you won't get that promotion that you want. Maybe you're you're afraid to be lonely at work so you don't talk about Christ because you're afraid if you mention Christ that people at work will no longer want to be your friends and, and they'll walk away. But stand for Christ. Talk about him. Don't be ashamed to speak about your faith because it's going to happen either way, whether you force it or whether you don't. Because as time gets worse, people are going to question, as First Peter 3.15 says, what is the hope that is in you? Why is it that you live differently? Why don't you swear like everybody else? Or why don't you, you know, get drunk like everybody else? Why don't you go to clubs and, and do all these things that everybody else does? This is what the people in First Peter were facing. They were living differently. Because they were chosen exiles. So they were living according to who they were. Separated. They were not of this world. They were not of the people of this world. They thought differently. They acted differently. They think differently. And that change caused a stir. So they were facing these trials, and Peter's saying, don't be grieved. Even that persecution that you're facing, God is sovereign over that. That boss who's getting on your nerves because he knows that you're a Christian... God is sovereign over that. Your friends who, are, who abandon you because of your faith, God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign over everything. And Peter's saying, God knows that you're facing trials. God knows that you're suffering. But in the midst of it, rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Because God cares about your faith. God wants to see your faith grow. And that's why he puts the word the genuineness of your faith. And the expression that he uses here Russell like this as one who is putting a, a metal through a fire and as a, you put it to the fire, what happens? It weakens. But what, why do you do that for? So you can hammer it and shape it into the image of that you want it to be. That's our faith. When we're going through suffering, God is putting our faith to the test to see, do you really believe what you say you believe? I know you read your Bible every morning. I know you talk churchy stuff. I know that you, when you have your friends and with your friends, you say all these wonderful Christian things and you talk about God. Is that really true of you? do you really believe that in your heart of hearts? When you say brother, I'm praying for you, man, trust God God, you know, and you quote Romans A, and you said, all things were good for those who love you but when it comes to you, do you really believe that? Is that true of you? Because God doesn't see what we see, we see the outside but God sees the heart and he tests our faith so to see if our faith is really genuine. To see if we're truly believers. When I think of this, I think of the, the, of the parable of the seed. He plants it. And some it grows. Some don't. Some when it does grow, but the cares of the life destroy it. Because not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom of heaven. But only those who really believe. Our faith is precious. Our faith is important. Because our faith lets you know who you are. So Peter is saying that this suffering is not in vain. It's not in hopelessness. Your suffering is not just because God is just trying to be entertained. Because God is testing your faith to see if it's genuine. And as he told Peter... Peter, I have prayed for you because Satan has asked to sift you. But when you converted, so he really knew what Peter was going, to, was going to think because believe it or not, both Judas and Peter denied Christ. But only Peter came out victorious. And we know what happened to Judas. They both said no to God. But Peter's faith was genuine, even though it was tested. And he overcame that. And that's what Peter is telling us. Suffering is part of the Christian life. So that our faith may grow and grow and grow. Now what is faith? Because we talk a lot about faith. And unfortunately we have been influenced so much by the world that we think that faith is kind of like wishful thinking. Or something that might happen. Uh, I'm going to admit this in Eagle Country but I'm a huge Patriots fan. And every year I have faith that my team is going to win the Super Bowl. Some years I'm right, some years I'm wrong. Uh, this year I don't think I have too much faith. But that's not what faith is. Biblical faith, as Hebrews 11, one says, now faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of the things not seen. Our faith has evidence. Because our faith is from God because of who God is and his promises. Faith is not, is believing what we do not yet see. But I know that my faith is certain because I know who I, who I believe in is true. And one of the ways is his resurrection. The fact that he rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of God, I know that all the promises are yes and amen. And my faith is not in myself, but is in God, because I know what He told me in His Word. So my faith has evidence, my faith has assurance, and my faith gives me the hope, because hope is assured by our faith. So this is why He's so important about our faith, because it gives us. The, the, the courage to, f- to continue to go, as Joshua chapter 1 verse 6 says, be courageous. Why? Because it's not about you, it's about who you place your faith in. So our faith is not in faith, but in faith in God. Now why is faith important? Well, because if you read a few verses down from Hebrews 11, because without it, you can't please God. Look at what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, For whoever will draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Faith has to do with our interaction with God. Because without faith, it's impossible to live for God. Without faith, without faith, it's impossible to see God as He is, good. loving Father. A father who deeply loves you. I'm reading through Michael Reeves' book, um, Delighted in the Trinity, and he has a chapter in there, and he spends half of the chapter talking about how God, above all, is fatherly. And, and let's be honest, it's hard to see God as fatherly in our suffering, but that's where faith comes in. I'm encouraged in my suffering because I believe God is fatherly because of my faith in Him. And Peter is telling us that your faith is being tested so that as your faith grows, you see him as he is, a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith prepares us for the future. As Matthew chapter 7 verse 22 says, that those who build their, their house on sand and when the winds of life comes in, it destroys it. But those who build a house on the rock when the winds and storms comes, it stands. I believe that's talking about how life is and also eternity. But if your faith is in God, grounded in God, no matter how hard the storms is of life come to you, you'll be able to stand because you will see God as he is, a loving father who deeply, deeply loves you. He has not withheld anything from you. He loved you so much that he gave his only son, as Romans says, if he has given his son, how much more will he give us? Psalms eighty four eleven, nothing good as he withhold for those who walk uprightly. God loves you with a deep passion, and when you have faith in him, you see him as that. You see him not as a dictator who walks around, don't do this, don't do that. But as a loving father who deeply cares for you and wants and wants the best for you, so Peter's is telling us in verse seven, so that the test of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through the testing of faith, may be might find result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is interesting. Peter uses it twice in this same chapter. What Peter is speaking about here is the second coming of Christ. He's giving us here in the book of Peter what theologians call the already not yet. Peter's thinking here eschatology. He's thinking about the future. Although your, cert, although your present circumstances don't match your faith or don't match what God is, hope in the future. Peter's saying that at the revelation of Christ, when he comes back, Our faith helps us to believe that Christ is coming back. Peter talked about, the second Peter, that when he says that some have even denied that. First Thessalonians, Paul talks about that as well. He said that some have even said that Christ has already come. So faith helps us to be encouraged as we wait for his coming because we know that he's coming back. We live in a culture where they don't believe no longer in the afterlife. They even have a phrase, YOLO, you only live once. So therefore, live your life now because there is no afterlife. There is nothing after this. But the believer doesn't believe that. We believe there's an afterlife. And we believe that Christ came first, not to judge the world, but to save it. But we believe that he's coming back to judge the world. So our faith helps us. And as Peter says, when you wait for his coming, what do you do? You purify yourself because you know that he's coming back. So Peter says that this should lead to praise and glory. So then Peter here is speaking of a present future view of God. Now look at verse 8. So you have not seen him. You love him. But do you not now see him? You believe in him and rejoice with with joy that is indescribable and filled with glory. So Peter's saying that our faith helps us as we wait for Christ's second coming. But even now, because he's not talking about himself, because Peter saw Christ. He's speaking about those who are after him. As Jesus told Thomas, blessed are those who don't see and believe. I've never seen God. But by faith, I believe that he is and that he exists. And Peter's speaking about here, although you not have seen him now, you will in the future. He's speaking about an eschatology that's waiting for us to come. So why, then, do we believe? Because God exists. But is there clear evidence that God exists? Well, there is. If you look at Romans 1, 19 and 20... God has given us enough evidence that He does exist. We live in a world, in a culture that has denied that God exists, but there's plenty of evidence. A, God has placed His knowledge of Himself in our hearts. Calvin talks about this that God's knowledge of Him is planted in us, so that no matter how hard we try, we will never get rid of that. Bonson's saying that. God's evidence and Revelation is so clear. It's like a beach ball. The more you try to put it in the water, it keeps coming up. And also, too, Romans 20 talks about creation. The creation testify of his glory. Psalms 14.1 and Psalms 19. So men are without excuse. So when, when, when man stands in front of God, they can't say, not enough evidence, as Burton Russell once said. There's enough evidence because God has placed that evidence in our hearts, so that we know that God exists. He also placed it outside, so that when we see creation, we we do not we say, "Wow, what a marvelous God who created all of this." So then, what do we do then, and how do we prove that we love God? Well, the Scripture says that if you love God, you obey His commandments. That's one of the ways that we love God. Romans 8.28, 1 Peter 5 4 talks about that. It talks about that we are called to obey God's commandments. And to love God is equivalent to trusting or having faith in God. Because when you obey God's commandment, what are you showing? That you believe what it says. When you live according to Scripture, you believe and trust everything that it says. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So obeying Christ, obeying God, shows that you trust him. It's like a kid when he walks around, he doesn't ask God or ask his parents, where are we going? What are we doing? They don't ask, dad, are you going to clothe me today? Are you going to feed me today? That's the faith that we're called to have, childlike faith. A faith that is totally dependent upon him. Not childish faith, but childlike faith. And we do that when we obey his commandments. When we live according to the scripture. We show that we trust him and that we love him. And Peter goes on to say, although you don't see him now, we believe in him. Peter is speaking of a future event that waits for those who are waiting for his coming. First John chapter three verse two says this Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And when Peter says that, he t- talks about with that idea that gives us joy, unexpressible, filled with glory. Because we're waiting for it to see him face to face. No longer, no longer am I going to see God with the, faith, with the eyes of my faith or with faith. But I'll see him as he is. I will see the risen Christ. Even though I don't see it now. But I wait. And when I do, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be immeasurable. It's going to be wonderful. But that's only possible for the Christian. Because for the non-believer, when they see God, it's not going to be joyful. It's not going to be hopeful. It's going to be dread. It's going to be pain. But for the Christian, we rejoice because we want to see God. We want to see Christ. But for the unbeliever they don't want to see God because they know what waits them they know that they'll be separated from him they know that they'll be cast into the lake of fire where the Bible says that the, that the water will not quench the thirst but for the believer we long for that day we rejoice in that day we, we, we eagerly wait for that day as we, as John says, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord, come Because we know that in his presence, as Psalm 611 says, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand is a pleasure forevermore. We wait for God because in his presence there is joy. But also too, we know that we'll be released from the bondage of our sin. This corruptible body that weighs us down that doesn't allow us to freely worship God as we want to, will be no more. As Revelation 24, 21 4 says, no more weeping, no more tears, no more crying. Sin, which so easily entangles me, as Hebrews 12 says, will no longer be this, this flesh that weighs me down, that, that burdens me. And as Romans chapter 8, that the earth waits because it wants to be released from its burden. So we know when we see him, We'll be released from our, from our burdens. I love the book. Um, I forgot the name of the book now. Except my name. But Christian, in uh, the book of Progress, and he was talking about he had that, that burden on his back. And when he saw the cross and that, and that burden was released off from his back, that's going to be us. And that's where we, we rejoice because we're longing for that day to be released from this body of sin, this body of, of pain, this, this outward body that causes us to ache. And when we wake up in the morning, we feel, man, i got to have two more trends just to get through the day. Because our body is wasting away. But in a tinkling of an eye, as Paul says, we'll be renewed and transformed. And that is a result of our faith. Look at what verse 9 says. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, a salvation of your souls. Peter here is speaking what theologians call the already not yet. Now what does the already not yet mean? The already not yet means that we have already received some of the promises that God has promised us. But we have not yet have received them. It's like an example I give. It's like. When you get when a, when a husband and a, and a, when the two couples get engaged, the wife and the, and, and the, the girl and the boy live as though they 're married even though they 're not married yet. they acted so they know that they 're no longer allowed to talk to nobody else. they commit themselves to them and they wait for the wedding day and they live and they act as though they 're married even though they 're not in the moment that 's the already not yet that we wait for the consummation of what has been promised so the when the when the when the, when the boy makes a promise to, to the to the girl that would you marry me she says yes it's a promise that they made even though they have not yet consumed it even though the wedding day has not happened peter is saying that our salvation is guaranteed even though we have not received it because i don't walk around with a car saying chris you're saved or there's no sign that came from heaven that I walk on my forehead saying, saved belongs to uh, heaven. Or I don't have a license that says an address of 37 in heaven and 36 in, in, in salvation. But I'm waiting because I know of it. And there's some of the ways that we experience some of that. Well, one of the ways that we experience the outcome of salvation now is freedom from our sins. We no longer have to sin. Before I was saved, I had no choice but to sin. But now I'm freed from the dominion of sin, as Romans chapter 6 talks about. And even now, I experience glimpses of joy. But the joy that I experience now doesn't compare to the joy that awaits me. But here Peter talks about the salvation of your soul. Right now, we're promised that the wrath of God no longer stands upon us. But in heaven, we will experience that promise because we will dwell in his presence. and we will be with him forever. God told us that we're free from his wrath and his anger no longer is upon us. But we will consume that promise. We will consume that truth when he comes back and takes us. And when he comes back, as I close, we will experience joy, happiness, peace, and we will enter the eternal rest. Here's what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 to 11 says. Therefore, a time of eternal rest exists for God's people. Those who enter his place of rest also rest from their work, as God did from his. So we must make every effort to enter the place of rest. Then no one will be lost by, flowing, by following the example of those who refuse to obey. We'll receive the outcome of our faith. All the suffering that you're going through is not in vain. All the times that you spend reading His Word is not in vain. Your life is not in vain. Because first, it is sovereignly controlled by God, and your faith is sustaining you as you wait for His coming. So Christian, be encouraged. Have faith in God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We ask that you guide us and lead us and show us the path. Lord, help us to believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to grow in our faith so that we can see you as a loving father. And that we wait eagerly for your second coming. Give us grace as you always do. And give us mercy so that we can stand firm. Though the enemy will attack us. Though the world will mock us. Though the flesh would, would, would cause us to go against your word. Help us, Lord, to fight the good fight of faith. And then when you come back, we will experience your love and kindness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.